Welcome to the Eat Local Central New York podcast. In this week's episode, I'm sitting down and chatting with local food writer and editor, Margaret McCormick. Some people walk the walk and talk the talk, and some people don't. Maybe I have that backwards, talk the talk and walk the walk. <laughs> I'm not sure, but um, but it's encouraging to see like the brine well. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's really interesting and and uh he's seems quite serious about yeah. walking and see the list and he says he's being you know the owner 70 percent local and it's, it seems that he really is now margaret is considered a freelance or what you would consider a freelance writer editor uh, but she's also known for working with local businesses for public relations and working with them to help their social media efforts and you can find Margaret on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and I'm sure you you know most of you know exactly who Margaret is if you read anything in most publications in central New York uh, then you've probably stumbled across Margaret's name or an article that she's written or edited at some point in your life And so I've always enjoyed sitting down and chatting with Margaret about her perspective and views on the restaurant industry and the culinary world here in Central New York. And, you know, I don't think I've ever had a conversation with Margaret that didn't last at least two hours. Uh, So today's podcast, I'm sure you're going to love because I enjoyed sitting down and chatting with her. Uh, But I hope you enjoy the conversation. Make sure and be on the lookout. We've got some exciting stuff happening in the near future with Eat Local CMY. You're going to start seeing a lot more events that we're going to start throwing from dinner parties and networking events to happy hours. And so make sure that you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at EatLocalCNY. Follow us at our website. Hit us up at EatLocalCNY.com. Also, we have coming up here in a couple weeks, we're going to have more details announced in the coming days. But you can head over to eatlocalcmy.com and get some more information about it now. But we're going to start doing photography classes. Now, this isn't a class if you want to become a professional food photographer in your life, although it would help. These are classes if you just run an Instagram account, if you're trying to become a social influencer, if you just want to take better pictures to kind of show friends and family on Facebook of some of the food that you're eating, then you're going to love these classes, whether you're shooting on your iPhone or cell phone or if you have a professional camera. Uh, bringing in some amazingly talented photographers in the area to come in and teach these classes. And so they're going to cover topics from lighting and placement and arrangement of your food and your plate on the table and taking pictures at different perspectives and angles to showing the photographers going to be showing you exactly what they use and some tips and tricks that they've learned on their gear and their rig uh, over the years. And so I'm really excited for the classes. They're only 35 bucks. They're going to take place at different restaurants around town, and you're going to be able to take some amazing pictures, learn how to, and then get the opportunity to take pictures in each session. So for 35 bucks, you can learn this. Class is going to go a little over an hour. And again, you can head over to eatlocalcmy.com and get more information on them. You know, I was thinking that this would just be classes that would be great for the average person who just wants to take better pictures. But, you know, if you're a local restaurant owner or if you're running the social media for a local restaurant and you've been struggling with getting great images for your Instagram or your Facebook or whatever it is that you're posting onto, then this is a great opportunity for you for 35 bucks and for an hour to learn a lot and be able to grow your business. So head over to eatlocalcmy.com and check it out. 
But without further ado, here is my conversation with Margaret McCormick. Where did you originally grow up? Did you grow up here in Syracuse? Yep. I grew up here in Syracuse on the, in the university area on Euclid Ave between Ackerman and Sumner. That's where I spent my really early years, and then we moved um, on the east side off Meadowbrook. So I went to Catholic school at St. Therese on um, Lancaster Ave, which is now called All Saints Church, mm. and then one year at H.W. Smith, which was junior high at the time, and then graduated from Nottingham High School. What did your parents do for a living? My father was the um, director at the time of the Syracuse Public Library System before it merged mm. into become county-run. And my mom was a homemaker. I'm one of seven kids. Oh, wow. Youngest, so, youngest, oldest. I am number six out of seven. Yep. And uh, so dad, so is it kind of your dad working in kind of the library system that kind of led you on the path of journalism? Sort of. I just always, in school, I was challenged with uh, math and science. Mm. And always did well in the English, social studies, more that kind of thing. Did really well in English. My SATs skewed really high on the, the what do they call it? The, not the verbal, but the, the written, the word, the more creative and terrible in the math. And um, I started writing actually as a result of in ninth grade, my English teacher um, suggested that I enter this, um, I guess you could call it a competition, an essay contest, and I entered it, and it won. And that sort of, I just always sort of gravitated towards words and the more creative end of thing. English, loved to read, you know, loved going to the library to see my father at work, and spending time there and can still picture that downtown library what it was like in there and just spent many many happy hours there so but um that essay contest and that really I think reading sort of I mean even now I'm still really a reader reading informs my writing so wh what happened where'd you go after high school after high school I went to college at St. Bonaventure in western New York mm -hmm. and studied journalism there I've been, I used to spend time in Olean for work. Yeah. Yeah. So, and my mom's originally from Olean, so. Really? I, yeah, my mom grew up in Olean, and that's where she met my father. Okay. And, um. Is your dad from there, or is? No, my dad's side of the family is originally from Watertown. They eventually mm -hmm. came down to Syracuse, but my father, before he was the director of the library here, he was the director of the library in Olean. Oh, wow and taught, which was also a Carnegie Library, and taught at St. Bonaventure. So hmm. and my mother's mother was there and her sister. So, I mean, we always, I spent many summer weeks hmm. there growing up in Olean. So when it came time to look at colleges, I looked at SU, of course, and St. Bonaventure and a couple other schools and just really felt that, that for me, St. Bonaventure, a really small school, was a good fit. Yeah. I wasn't the world's best student. I felt like I needed the, and my parents felt like I needed the more personal attention that I would get mm -hmm. at a smaller school as opposed to Newhouse. And I wasn't actually accepted into Newhouse. I was accepted into SU and then would have hopefully gotten into Newhouse. But 
So I studied at St. Bonaventure four years, and I had, um, during my junior year, an internship at the Post Standard, and um, that was my introduction to the newspaper business. And when I graduated, I um, looked elsewhere for jobs. It was the early 80s, a really rough time in the newspaper business. There weren't a lot of jobs out there. I mean, not rough times compared to now, but... But rough then, not a lot of jobs available out there, and um, I ran into a guy at the grocery store who was my one of my supervisors when I had an internship, said, hey, I'm here, um, I'm back here, I'm looking for jobs, if there's anything there, and I started out at the Post Standard doing research for a consumer advice column. That was my first job after graduation. Hmm. Yeah, I think of kind of some of the things that are standing out and that are newsworthy, at least in, you know, the world and uh, American politics and government at the time. So are you coming, so you're in high school when, like, you know, obviously the war is going on and, you know, all these um, crazy articles are coming out about, you know, revealing, I forget what it was, was it the Washington Post that had that huge... Watergate. Yeah. Yeah. So you have all those things. So are those things kind of influencing your decisions to, you know, kind of want to pursue journalism? Yeah. Or is it just more so your love for literature and the written word? I would say that. I mean, that was, I mean, that and even being younger, every single night my parents would have the news on TV and it was the Vietnam War and yeah. and all sorts of things like that. And, yeah, I knew that, um, believe it or not, from editing a yearbook and working on a school paper that that was just what I I wanted to do. And I was never in the um, heavy news end of the news business except for as an editor. I never was like, I mean, I was. I, I had the opportunity to do a little bit of everything. I mean, as an intern, you cover deaths and go and sit while a lake is being dragged when somebody drowns and wait to do a news story like that that was pretty hard for me (laughs) (laughs) um believe it or not you do get used to doing things like that but I always gravitated more towards the featurey end of you know what some people call the fluffy news (laughs) end of things the lifestyle stories the you know food the even fashion um human interests Hmm. um that kind of story yeah but as an editor when i worked as an editor i mean i did a variety of jobs when i was at the post standard um as an editor i worked on the news desk for many years and and which was more not writing the news but assembling the news for the front page and the front sections and and things like that so but I've always gravitated to the more soft, I guess you could say, <laughs> side of things. So um, I did the other stuff for a long time and uh, really wanted to get back into, you know, I'll just give you the Reader's Digest version. Yeah. I started out doing research for a column and then worked in the lifestyle section and then worked in the neighbor section as an editor and then worked on the news desk as an editor. And for a long time, editing was more my thing than writing. And I still like to straight up edit. I think being an editor, I encourage when younger people ask me to always 
to be an editor if you can as well as a writer or a reporter because I think being an editor really helps your writing. Yeah. Yeah, it causes you, there's, I mean, you know, because, you know, when we, when Eat Local Scene, I did our blog two years ago, that short, very short-lived <laughs> blog, uh, you were the editor for us. And so you know how bad uh, the general public and my writing was. But I remember reading uh, a book on writing well. And then I also remember reading uh, an a favorite author of mine. His name is Donald Miller, who talked about that book. And just saying all the filler words that you can take out of sentences that you don't right. need. You know, we just they're kind of in conversation, but they're not written well. And just things like that, once you once you kind of start to look at editing a little bit more, you know, I still, I don't double space anymore because of you. So, thank you. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, one of the things I really appreciate about the New Times, uh, even just writing for them every other week, is that I have an editor. Mm. It's important to me that, that I'm glad... I mean, I do it for my blog. I just post on my own. I, yeah. I, I spell check. I feel pretty confident about it, but I really like having somebody look at my work and yeah. offer suggestions. Nobody's perfect, and I really do think that everybody needs an editor. Yeah. So. Do you have to have – does the editor have to be more talented than the journalist or the writer? Um, it's not – it's not more – talented i think they're just more careful or cautious or knowledgeable or i mean even after all this time i i still have questions i have to look up certain words all the time how to spell them mm -hmm. I, and the brain never registers and word tenses and modifiers and and this that and the other thing that's you know important maybe becoming less so important these days but <laughs> you know you know my editor at the new times he's been here a long time he really knows the area he asks good questions and mm. i i appreciate that and sometimes you're not always a hundred percent it's just good to know that somebody has your back yeah for sure you know yeah i can uh just in blogging that i've done for myself over the years that you know, no one other than myself, my girlfriend at the time, my mother and my grandmother ever read, but still knowing that there were times I would send things to my brother, for example, who was an English teacher and have him look it over. Yeah, the confidence in putting those things out is extraordinary. And I think there is something to be said, you know, today, especially for myself creating like video content or this podcast or social media posts. There is something that even things that are wrong, um, the untrained, we still educate, we still uh, put it out and defend it with it's my art, even if it's wrong or inaccurate or whatever. Uh, it's still, well, this is my expression, so it's not wrong. Uh, writing, you can't really get away with that. You know, it's either right or it's wrong. You know, the other thing is, though, you shouldn't beat yourself up about your blog or any blog because a blog is really different than a news story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, 
I mean, it's just different. Yeah. It's when I write something for my blog or anybody's blog, I don't have to. If, if I'm writing for a print publication, I will try to talk to multiple sources. For my blog, I don't have to do that. Mm -hmm. or for anybody's blog, I don't have to do that. But for a newspaper or magazine, there are certain expectations, and it's just different. It's a more relaxed format, but yeah. you still have to think about accuracy and facts, I think. Mm -hmm. That's just my opinion. But so... It's a different, it's a different world right now. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, what was your first, what was your first memorable experience with journalism or anything like that that kind of gave you that first shot of inspiration? Um, believe it or not. I started out writing obituaries and um, just a basic who, what, where, when, why mm -hmm. kind of story and um, about people that, you know, it used to be said in the newspaper business that you're, you're in the newspaper twice in your life, when you're born and when you die. <laughs> and I don't think that happens all the time anymore because... Uh, obituaries are now a paid thing so not everybody pays for that so it's not <laughs> it's not the 100 percent record that it used to be but um mm. just doing something like that on a daily basis who what where when why not being super creative mm. unless it was you know a big major death or something like that but but just doing things that gave me confidence like working on the police beat kind of stuff that yeah. it was really hard for me being a kind of shy person to show up with a notebook and just be kind of in people's face mm -hmm. like that at a time when it's it's not for everybody but doing stuff like that regularly or, or going to a common council meeting and having to to write about things like that gives you just a a certain confidence that you can report the facts and then feature writing is a, a, a whole different kind of thing but hmm. i can't think of one story that 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 sparked it that sort of sparked it but i mean i did work on a team of three of us at the time worked on um the story at the time when vanessa williams who was the miss syracuse who became miss new york state who then became Miss America and then was stripped of her title for nude photos. Oh, that's um, right. I forgot about that part. That was a big story here. And um, three of us working on that was, hmm. that was kind of uh, a big deal and also confidence booster also. What was that in the mid nineties? No, um, more like mid to late, I'd say mid I want to say 1985, but I don't know okay. for sure. Yeah, it's wild. Remember. Yeah, it's wild to think how things have changed because that arguably wouldn't happen today in our society if Miss America had nude photos out there. Right. If anything, that would get more press and you know maybe help the cause. Right. That was, you know, that was a big story around here. Hmm. She started out. She was a Syracuse University student who yeah. became Miss Syracuse, Miss New York, and. That's why and it just, bam, exploded. Yeah. And it also hmm. was sort of like 
the introduction to to us of you know tabloid journalism and yeah it was all over the tabloids and that's wild and stuff like that and and so yeah there are just like certain stories that you remember that was a big one working as an editor the oj simpson trial was a big one you know oklahoma city bombing 9-11 yeah all those i was working as an editor at the time and there were two newspapers in town and and uh it was a great gig while it lasted. <laughs> How um, long were you at the Post Standard? Um, from nineteen until two thousand nine. Okay. I left ten years ago. Yeah. Exactly ten years ago, June thirtieth of this year. Hmm. What do you think? What What's the biggest? Some of the biggest changes you've seen in those ten years? Oh my gosh, social media. Yeah. Social media for sure. Um, <clears throat> Um, digital news as opposed to print news, um, blogging, uh, you know, just different places where people get their news um, and how people get their news. And, and, um, you know, after I left the post standard, I worked briefly for the Syracuse symphony, which was, everybody knew it was in was going down mm. but I went to work there as a communications coordinator very briefly and mm. was glad I did because it I it made me realize that if if the symphony had stayed and if that job had lasted that easily 85 90% of it would be social media based mm. so it sort of um got me into that area yeah. of of things. You know, I had a friend suggest you need to go on Twitter and I'm like, why? <laughs> well, <laughs> once you do, once you start using those things, your your blog that's being seen only by your family and friends is introduced to a wider audience. So but mm-hmm. man, the explosion in that in <clears throat> ten years is oh just amazing. You you don't know any different. You're a lot younger. So yeah. but but I do. Yeah, for <laughs> so sure. So I, you know, I remember and it's, you know, I see myself, you know, I get a lot of story ideas from social media or, mm-hmm. you know, things that I oh, want to yeah. work on that I see there first that I never would have thought, you know, in the old days you found out stuff through a press release or just mm. word of mouth or. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I actually just I had to write my first press release mm-hmm. about four, three or four weeks ago for work, and I emailed it in, and nothing ever came of it. <laughs> but um, I remember, and it wasn't too long. It was only maybe two or three months ago. Terry Weaver, right before she transitioned out of food, was doing that on social. She had posted in the Facebook group for Where Syracuse Eats. Mm-hmm. You know kind of going through, can't think of anything. Are there any interesting stories out there in the restaurant world that anybody knows about? And yeah, it is a huge, huge deal. I couldn't imagine. I mean, Eat Local CNY doesn't exist if it's not for social media. Right. And even today, there's still, if you, I mean, I think about it every time I go into a restaurant and see a uh, newspaper article cut out where the Post Standard did a dining out review or whatever it is, um, even in modern places like Kasai Ramen, 
you know, Kyle has those posted on the wall. Mm -hmm. So the newspaper, even though there would be maybe there's more um, exposure through a digital format of a feature on a restaurant, you don't see restaurants printing those blogs out or anything like that, you know, or saying we were posted on this video. It's still newspaper that's, you know, published on the wall, posted on the wall. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was talking to a longtime restaurant owner a couple months ago, and I called him on the phone and to set up an appointment with one of his staff members, and he goes to me, how old are you? And I go, <laughs> he goes, I'm looking at something you wrote that's hanging in our ladies' room from 1980-something. <laughs> I know, I thought that was hilarious. So, um, you know... It's still very important, and mm-hmm. I do PR, and, um, you know, it's weird because having been in the business, I find myself telling people, I mean, it's it's like you don't want to turn away your own business, but I feel like tell people, you know, there aren't a lot of media outlets to send a press release to anymore. Oh, yeah. Or people that are going to pick up on this story, but it print is still important mm-hmm. for you know, if I'm doing PR for a client, of course I want their story, their yeah, press sure. release to be picked up by Syracuse.com. So listen, I, I mean, was, yeah, it's still, Syracuse.com has a lot of pull in this city. And, uh, you know, there's, I was just talking with Nick from Limp Lizard uh, a couple weeks ago. And I was asking him and all the promotion that they did for Wing Fest or things they've done at the restaurant, what his you know, got him the most business, the most attention, and it's still Syracuse.com. Even with all the other Instagrammers and everything like that that right. exists around town, that's still the one that does the most. It can, you know, it's a way to, you know, I tell somebody that I'm doing work for to get in front of many eyeballs, mm-hmm. and that's what you want, mm-hmm. you know. So, um, you know, the New Times also to a degree, but it's, the New Times website, you know, not to say anything bad about the New Times, I yeah. do work for them, but the New Times website, they don't break news. Yeah. It's not as instant as, mm-hmm. and it's just, it's not the same amount of eyeballs. I wish them all the best of luck with that, but yeah, it's, it's not the same. I mean, if I'm doing PR for a client mm-hmm. that's local, I want them to. Yeah. That's the best place for them to land if possible. Yeah, for sure. Things are changing in the food scene, though. Sure are. Yeah. I mean, we have sure places are. like Defi and St. Urban that are opening up that are completely bringing us into a new era for... Salt City Market. Yeah. So many new ethnic-type restaurants that I can barely keep up with, like Habibas and places yeah. on the north side and all over town and... Defee and um, the, um, gosh, Brinewell Eatery. Yeah. Uh, and their local focus. Uh, it's really exciting to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, do you think, what do you think about the farm to table? Uh, I don't want to call it a movement, but the farm to table focus. Do you think that's something that has... Uh, kind of come and gone in the area? Do you think it never, it, like it still has a ways to go to kind of meet its full potential? Yeah, I I do. I've, 
in my own, I've stopped using the words farm to table in stories Mm -hmm. because so many places say that they are and they aren't (laughs) really. And, um, you know, like a lot of things, I, you know, I've sort of learned the hard way that it's sort of, it's sort of like the word green was, Mm -hmm. you know, it's used so often that it becomes kind of meaningless and it's not (laughs) accurate. I I mean, I hate to say it. There's some people walk the walk and talk the talk and some people don't. Maybe I have that backwards, talk the talk and walk the walk. (laughs) I'm not sure, but, um, but it's encouraging to see like the brine well, uh, you know, that's really interesting and and uh he's seems quite serious about yeah. walk in and see the list and he says he's being you know the owner 70 percent local and it's it seems that he really is i think what happens is and i don't want to speak for the restaurant industry i think a lot, a lot of restaurants start out and then find they can't afford yeah yeah to I- to keep, yeah, to sustain that. Right. Mm-hmm. I forget who it was I was talking with. Maybe it was, um, I think it was Micah, but that must have been, that was two, two and a half years ago. Um, now he was, he would always say that it was less expensive for him to be able to source locally. I think, I want to say I've even heard Vic, uh, Victor Ramirez from Madison Bistro say the same thing. In some cases, it's less expensive to source locally than it is to go through one of the big food suppliers. That's what Devin Hubbard from the Brian Well said that for him, for his needs, that when I went down to talk to him last week, he was carrying in a stack of five bags of Hinnerwaddle salt potatoes for, hmm. for you know, he smashes, you know, yeah. smashed salt potatoes are the base for one of the plates there or several of the plates there. And so he had a big stack of those. And he said that for him and what he's doing there, it's less expensive for him to eliminate the middleman and oh yeah for and, sure but for higher end to sustain i think it's hmm. i think it's hard yeah um so yeah um i did a story a couple of years ago on a food truck that was very local and um the story ran in the new times and a reader of the new times went out to see the food truck to Wanted to sample their food, and it was really super early in the season, the growing season. It was like April, very beginning of April. Food truck was at an event. The reader put his camera inside the truck and saw that the potatoes weren't sourced locally and wrote me and Bill Broad at the New Times nasty letter, and we had some back and forth. And and uh, it just was kind of farm to table. <laughs> I'm not going to use that anymore. I'm going to yeah. locally sourced, seasonal, local, yeah, farm to table. It's just not. But hmm. I want to believe in it. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. I I tell the story often. There was a restaurant in town that um, said the the menu changed with the season, and I had gone there multiple times throughout the course of the year, and the menu was the same, exact same every time. Um, but I also got that same spiel from the uh, wait staff every time we sat down. Have you ever been here before? Yes. So then you know that the menu changes with each season and 
you know, crops come in and we change everything around. And so it's a completely different menu, but the exact same items, the exact same ingredients were still on the menu from January through, you know, spring and summer and fall and December. And, you know, I think the, I don't want to say the farm to table, you know, movement has ended or whatever it is, but maybe the popularity of it has, you know, and it is more of a local focus than it is necessarily the yeah, catchy. I mean, I mean, there are places that, I mean, like Riley's, for example, that mm. you don't think of Riley's as a farm-to-table restaurant, but they source a lot local. Yeah. They grow herbs out back. They, you know, they go to the trouble to get meats from Lees and Staggerwalds even. Yeah. Some local farms there. Um, I mean, have you ever been to Elderberry Pond? You know what? I Oddly enough, I have not. That's, I mean, it's on a farm. That's, yeah. Um, Rebecca's been a few times, mm-hmm. and she enjoys it. Yeah, I mean, it's really kind of classic, elegant, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, fresh. Um, I haven't been there in a couple of years. Um, you know, the folks at Defee are very committed. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, Chris Sesta, you know, I think of, you know, the, I mean, the stuff in their own garden that he does. A lot of their vegetables comes from things that they grow or have grown, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of restaurants that are doing, you know, great work with that. Um, it's hard to scale that, you know, to do it on a, a lot, on a large scale and really get big, you know, considerably big and still be able to source things that effectively locally. Right. That's but. what people have told me. I don't, I'm not an expert in this area, but restaurant people have told me that it's hard for a big place to source as much like meat yeah. locally as they would need. Yeah. For although I think of change of pace and you know one of their one of the things that I've always heard about them is what makes their wings so good is that they are sourced locally. Oh wow. I don't I, I didn't, didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that there is a local farm that could keep up with that sort of production, but apparently there is. Mm-hmm. The story goes at last year's Wing Fest that uh one of the major food suppliers was a sponsor and that every vendor was using uh their wings. And the owner of Change of Pace lost his mind because he said, I'm not using these things. I'm only using the fresh ones that I get. And so there was some oh, wow. conflict there. But, yeah, you know, it is um, – there was just somebody that claimed that they were smoking their wings and doing it a very specific way. And uh, at one of the – at the, this past wing fest, the owner was seen, you know, carting in cases of frozen Tyson chicken wings, you know, so – Things tend to go out the window when, you With know. that volume, yeah, I for would sure. think. So when did you first start writing for or about restaurants and food in the area? Um, there was a period, probably before you were born, <laughs> that um, I, well, so I was writing feature stories at the newspaper, at the Post Standard, and at some point, I and uh, one of my colleagues were um, did restaurant reviews, mm. and um, that was for the Post. That was for the Post Standard, and there was still a Herald Journal, and the Herald Journal had somebody on staff that did restaurant reviews also. Um, and I liked it. People think it's just oh, you get to go out to dinner and eat, and <laughs> it's it's really hard. And I. Uh, I find critical writing to be really hard. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I did that for a while and I enjoyed it. It's also really hard when you're just going out to a place once. Yeah. One anonymous visit. Maybe you're hitting a place on a good night or hitting a place on a bad night. and So critical, oh. critical writing, not really my thing. Yeah. Um, is that more just character or just the, or what is it about you that makes it difficult for that? Um, I find it hard to, I don't want to say bad things about a place that's trying really hard to, to be good. I just, especially now at this point in time, I just, yeah. I'm I'm just I I don't have that interest. Um I've thought about it. It's also really different now with social media. I mean at the time nobody knew who you were, couldn't really look <laughs> you up, didn't know what you looked like, anything like that. Now it's really so it's probably a combination of my own shyness, a a slight uh, uh you know, underconfidence in the area even though I know a lot about food and restaurants. It's just hard I think to be, I don't want to be critical. Yeah. I'd rather write about positive. Things. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> not everything's always positive with a restaurant, but I just personally myself right mm-hmm. now at this point in time, don't want to, there was a point in time at the post standard that I was editing the food section and, um, which came out on Wednesday, which had lots of grocery ads, and we ran lots of recipes and things like that. It was a different time and place, and we weren't really writing that much local. Yeah. And we were, you know, as an editor editing that section, I frequently would, quote, localize mm. stories from other sources, like from Philadelphia and from New York and sometimes Los Angeles, and try to localize it for our readership and and suggested to our editors why aren't we writing about hmm. local food food in our backyard and that's how i really got into to writing about food yeah and um so it just didn't make sense to me that we were running stories for a los angeles audience or a philadelphia <laughs> audience or even a miami audience and trying to make it fit our neck of the woods instead of writing stories about we live in a major agriculture area yeah writing stories about those folks and and uh local restaurants and i mean we always did some Mm. but not a lot so i mean that's really how i kind of got into that that and receiving once a, a handwritten note from somebody who was transitioning a farm from from um growing crops to um to small dairy and starting up its wake robin farm starting up a hmm. a yogurt operation yogurt and cheese received a handwritten note from them about what they were doing and was like why aren't we yeah we should be writing about people like this and celebrating them and so that's kind of where my interest um, hmm. came from. That and, you know, one summer on vacation, I read Fast Food Nation mm-hmm. <laughs> and started really thinking about what I eat and hmm. where it comes from. And 
I don't I don't eat everything local. I wish I could afford yeah. to. I have to to choose what you know my budget allows, but it was sort of that and an eye opener to me of yeah. of thinking about food and where it comes from that and I have a sister who lives in France and every time I've been there they just eat so differently yeah. you know they market probably not so much now because her kids are all grown up but when I first um, started going there as a, a young person just you know going to the market every day hmm. and but anyhow I sort of digress from local but that's sort of how I got into local interests and um I started my food blog um, around the time that I was transitioning out of the newspaper. Mm. I was just um, frustrated and, um, you know, there had been a series of buyouts and I could see where the business was going and, and, and just felt like I don't have to be here when the final nail is in the coffin or when hmm. the ship goes down or whatever and just came home one night and started my blog. Hmm. So, um, which my work takes precedence and blog kind of comes, you know, kinda, yeah, kind of secondary. So, um, which is just a creative and local outlet for me. Yeah. What have you noticed that's changed the most in Syracuse and the restaurant world from, you know, when you're first starting to cover and do reviews to today? Um, Is there one thing? There's, maybe you agree, there's a lot less, like, quote-unquote, fine dining type restaurants. Okay. I think. Yeah. I mean, they're more casual, Mm -hmm. but offering, you know. Better food. Yeah. Finer food. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, listen, I showed up to the. there's some of that. I showed up to the Deefy event wearing a hat, wearing this hat. Right. (laughs) You know, I think that could just be culture, though, because, um not that I'm a personality by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, still I'm trying to kind of, you know, blast, eat local CNY anywhere and everywhere that I can. So I'll show up wearing this super annoying hat that tells people to go buy their eat local CNY card. <laughs> I wear this every day to work, you know, unless I have something that tell you know, a meeting that I can't do, uh, you know, where I need to be a little bit more professional, but I was actually, you know, it's it's funny. I I had Rebecca and I had that conversation getting ready for that dinner. You know, at the end of it, I was thinking to myself, you know, Rebecca was like, "Do I need to dress up to this?" You know, I was thinking, "Do I need to dress up to this?" But at the end of the day, I'm a food Instagrammer, so right. And we're going to be sitting under a tent, and it's hot out. Yeah, and there's yeah. a chance of of tornado and et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, the uh, the other big dis- difference locally is that there's you know there's so many more ethnic choices of mm-hmm. i mean there's thai there's chinese there's um syrian there's yeah there's with love there's i mean there's all sorts of of different sort of places that weren't here before there's you know people really think of here as you know italian american food there's still a lot of that mm-hmm. um but 
there are other options there's it's so nice to to go out to places and see i'm not a vegetarian or a vegan but see places being inclusive yeah like the brine well just i keep going back to him but Mm. i mean i have vegetarians in my family and it's like you think about where to go and it's like well let's go where there's some more options other than uh, portobello mushrooms and pasta primavera and yeah there's a lot more options now and there's stuff at all varieties of price points yeah um restaurants aren't as enormous as there used to be there used to be just these you know enormous places with seats for like 200 that kind of not so much there anymore i mean think about the places opening downtown they're all small pretty small yeah you know so um people have lots of choices and lots of places to spend their dollars and mm-hmm. oh for sure i like seeing the smaller places pop up i mean don't get me wrong i like going to a you know i think of a one of one of my favorite restaurants in New York City is a place called Frank's, a little Italian place. And I mean, granted, it's New York City, but it's so tiny in there. I, I hate going there. Um, so there are some restaurants where if it's small, I, I can't stand it. But uh, I also like seeing smaller places pop up because it gives people the opportunity to go in with, you know, less of an investment. Right. You know, um, and put something great out, you know, who maybe wouldn't be able to if they had to rely on some massive restaurant like Tassone's out in Baldwinsville that can seat 300 people. Right. You know. There used to be many places like that, and, and they're just, there aren't so much anymore. Look at all the coffee places there are now. Yeah. That weren't here before <laughs> yeah. that. I mean, I remember when Freedom of Espresso opened on Pearl Street, that was a big deal. Yeah. There wasn't, like, a, hmm. a coffee shop like that. I had never had a a cappuccino or a latte or or Hmm. anything like that before and um look at all the bakeries there are now yeah it's wild you know i mean that weren't here before um and downtown too oh for sure um so it's interesting to see but i guess we just don't dine as formally as we used to anymore because Mm. i remember when I'm old enough to remember when Pascal's opened on Holly Ave mm-hmm. and the waiters wore tuxes <laughs> and it was, you know, fancy. You still have that type of food. Yeah. But people are more relaxed about, I kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So do I, because you can go out and get great food and not have to worry about much. Right. You still have to pay for it. Right. You know, I love Deefy, and you can go in there and have an entree and spend $20 for dinner. Um, but really, who wants to go to Deefy and not go for the, you know, four-course dinner? And, right. You know, you're going to walk out spending 75 to to $100 on it. I haven't done that yet. Oh, it's, We're going to, though. Yeah. We've gone. I've gone uh, twice by myself and once with Rebecca, and it's just, you know, it's worth Well, you know, I mean, the the little article, the little blurb for Central New York Magazine, I mean, that is my favorite restaurant without a question. You know, it's just, there's something special about that place. They're really kind of elevating things, I would say. Yeah, without a doubt. 
So some questions that I'm kind of asking everybody okay. uh, that's on the podcast are, and you've probably, you've already heard them, um, but you have limited items in your pantry or your fridge. Maybe there's it's things that you always have in there. Um, for example, for some reason, we always have rice and black beans mm-hmm. in our pantry here. So you have limited things in your pantry or your fridge. What what are you making? What's kind of your go-to? Oh, my go-to is to always have some pasta, spicy hot oil mm. in the fridge, and um, and make some some pasta with it. Um, Robert is out two nights a week, so I cook for myself. Just things that I wouldn't necessarily cook for him. Mm. That um, I will just pan sear a piece of salmon. And make a salad. I'm big on making a salad. Um, when he's not home, I make stuff for myself that he wouldn't ordinarily eat. I'll take some farro and roast some mushrooms if I have them or whatever kind of vegetables that we have in the fridge. Make the farro, sort of take some parm that we always have and kind of not like um, shred it with a box grater, kind of make it pebbles. Mm. And just mix it with um, olive oil and lemon and whatever vegetables, mm. um, some garlic. I'll make something like that. Um, Anthony, I'm boring. I eat grilled cheese <laughs> like once a week. <laughs> That's funny. Well, I mean, let's you know we don't get too crazy here. Although, I was just watching a documentary on Netflix. Uh, Michael Polson, I think it was his from his a book that he wrote. Anyways, I think that was it. I believe it's called Cooked. But in it, uh, they were talking to somebody, and uh, they said, uh, this person said, um, if you want to have apple pie, you want to eat a whole apple pie, go ahead and eat it. If you want to put chocolate chip cookies on top of the apple pie and eat that with it, go for it. If you want to add ice cream to it, go ahead. Have apple pie, chocolate chip cookies, and ice cream all at the same time. Wow. The only thing is you have to make all of those things yourself. So oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. And oddly enough, it, you know, it, uh, um, it just got me thinking even more so about cooking and, you know, how much I'd like to do more of it, of those things from scratch. I kind of cook on the weekend to have some leftovers. So mm-hmm. there's always some sort of leftover something in the fridge. I have leftover farro that I made later I guess I made it on the weekend and you know I learned from my niece in France that I just anything I anytime I have something like that left over vegetables I mm-hmm. just put an egg on it and eat it yeah that's my <laughs> I'm not I'm not very exciting that way um we try to cook so we don't have that much leftovers because there's only two of us and mm-hmm. it's getting to be grilling season and we kind of just become more um a little more spontaneous in what we eat something on the grill mm-hmm. vegetable salad yeah potato hmm. kind of thing um i love to bake that's my yeah that's my sort of relaxation but i don't let myself do it that often because there's just two of us and i can't eat that all the time <laughs> yeah i just can't I, I am guilty of uh making a cheesecake and then we'll have a slice of cheesecake every night until it's gone. We don't let it 
sit, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've started making, like taking, making some pie dough just for a single crust and putting it, I guess, a half portion or a quarter portion and taking whatever fruit we have and making little hand pies so we have, mm. yeah. so I'm not eight servings right. for two people um, kind of thing, doing more stuff like that, so... Mm. The other thing I wanted to mention that I think is really cool that's happening that you know because yeah. you've taken part of are these Chef Challenge events and the um, Farm to Fork. Yeah. Um, I encourage people to attend these because they're just really great ways to meet some new people yeah. and and get yourself introduced to what local foods are out there yeah for sure yeah i think those are great i i um you know we do a monthly dinner for eat local cmy but it's not an ev it's not so much an event like those i mean mark's events for farm to fork 101 are amazing i say it all the time about them i can't think of a more important per person in the restaurant industry in syracuse right now than mark just because he does so much of connecting the dots. And, I mean, Saturday I did a takeover of the Syracuse.com food Instagram account. I didn't know that. Yeah, I did it in the morning, and, you know, they had reached out, and they were asking pretty much every Instagrammer uh, to do it. And I was like, yeah, I'll do it. I just don't know what I want to do yet. And then Rebecca suggested that I follow Mark around the uh, regional market. And so that's what I did on Saturday. I met him. That's a great idea. Yeah, early at 7 and 7.30 and uh, just basically followed him around and, you know, did Instagram stories of the whole thing. And I just, I can't get over the people, that the farmers that he knows and then how he connects them to restaurants and then the people that are attending his events. And, you know, so things like that I just think are amazing. Um, we're going to, I'm going to try and go all in on events for eat local cny our event our dinners like we have one tonight at oh my darling and it's very different it's we have a meetup.com group and it's oddly enough and i still don't understand why but it's primarily uh women 55 and up that attend these events and uh it's them and me you know and we all <laughs> sit at one whenever we go out to dinner we sit at typically one long table and um, you know, there's no tickets. You don't pay to, you just order off the menu and pay your own bill. And I try to get as many other people from, you know, eat local CNY from our social to show up and just kind of have dinner themselves or whatever. Um, but I'm about to start going all in on events. I want to do dinners and happy hours and networking things. And I kind of feel I am no sort of an expert when it comes to, the world economy or finances or politics or anything associated with any of those things. However, I try to listen to as I try to consume as much content from different sources as I can. And everywhere I turn, I keep hearing a recession, a recession, a recession, a recession. I'm too young to understand the cycles of it, but, um, so I think something's coming, right? That we're going to enter another one? Yeah. I mean, of course we are because it happens Scary. every eight to ten years, right? Something happens. Um, and 
So in my head, I'm thinking, because in 2008 when it happened, I owned a furniture store. I was 21 years old, and I owned a furniture store. And I opened it a few months before, uh, and, and like the last few months of 2007. So we obviously closed abruptly once everything happened in 2008. And so I still was so young. I don't remember kind of how things felt. I wasn't in the restaurant world, so I don't remember how restaurants were affected. But with the clients that I have where I do their social media, and even for my 9 to 5 for Kubal, I'm thinking, all right, if this is happening, what do we need to do to start preparing for it? And so that's kind of why I'm wanting to go 100% into hosting these events because if I can create value for the average person to come to an event and if I can also create that uh, base for a a restaurant where I can say, hey, I'm going to have, you know, 30 to whatever people show up on this night, Mm -hmm. um, then I think I'll kind of be in a good space. Not do, I love, again, love what Mark does. Can't think of anybody more important than him right now in the, in the industry. I don't know if people are going to be paying 75 or however much the tickets are in nine months to go right. to an event, you know. Right. I've been told that the restaurant industry is safe, protected from those things because people may not go to a play or spend $60 going to a movie, but they'll still go out to eat as entertainment, even when times are tight. Um, so I've been told the restaurant industry is protected from it, you know, for the most part, but I hope so. I, I left the newspaper business and 10 years ago, right into the, the great recession. And I'm, I'm not convinced that this area has a hundred percent, bounced back recovered and um yeah in terms of i haven't really thought about it in terms of restaurants but in terms of jobs and yeah right you know it's different the jobs are different now you know yeah you know it's i get i don't i don't want to say i get criticized but i get people look at me funny restaurants and businesses look at me funny because I don't charge restaurants for anything. The only thing I charge them for is if I'm managing, running their social media, doing their marketing. But other than that, everything I do is free for restaurants. And people keep, especially more so lately, are like, you're crazy, why are you doing that? You have to make money. But I think right now, if there's an area where it's... um, that's a great way to put it. There's a fake, there's a, there's a fake value to it. It's kind of small business marketing, social, you know, um, influencers, things like that. Right. Maybe you don't have your return on investment immediately. Yeah. Well, I, well, for example, I reached out to someone in the area who has 50,000 Instagram followers and said, Hey, would you make a post? Like, what would it cost for me to make a post on your account for the Eat Local CMY card? And the cost was going to be $500. Now, I highly doubt that that would have generated anything, you know, maybe a little bit for me, nothing crazy. I know I wouldn't have gotten the $500 back, but that's kind of what I mean by like the fake value. 
there's no way that a single post on Instagram on somebody's profile is worth $500. And for our area, that's huge. Nationally, if we were down near New York City and somebody had 50,000 followers, they could charge $5,000 for a single, you know, so things like that are what I mean. And I think it's, it's overvalued here in our area. And so I think, you know, and if something does happen to the economy, and Syracuse will probably be a few months behind it if something happens nationally anyways. But having said all that, I think at that point I'll be even, I'll have even more value for Eat Local CMY because we're doing it for free. So, yeah, I forget how we got on, how I got on that rant. I don't know. It took me a long time to figure <laughs> out that, that not everybody does their own social media, you know? Oh, yeah. I was very naive and thought every restaurant does their own every everybody does their own that there's there's somebody involved with the organization doing social media and I was at an event for a story I guess I can't remember and met a guy there and he's like oh yeah I got 35 accounts right here on my phone that I (laughs) that I that I I manage I was like wow yeah um yeah I mean, I've done social media for for others, but it's been more for like the nonprofit, and I I would love to venture into doing it for yeah. food producers and some restaurants and whatever. But you know, I don't think farmers have it in their budget. Yeah. For a social media person, and I don't think a lot of restaurants do either. Maybe some do. Um, food producers, I'm I'm not sure, but yeah, I I foolishly thought. That they did it themselves. That everybody did it themselves. You it's know? such a. When I, I went to school for sound engineering, when I was nineteen, and it was, it wasn't the beginning of the change, but you know, sound engineering recording albums went from analog reel to reel to digital to a hard drive, and a computer, and I mean, right now we're sitting in my dining room recording this on two microphones and this little recorder and the whole thing cost i don't know four hundred dollars let's say 30 years ago to record this would cost you know 10 times that so in essence i could pop up and start a business and you know people were and going from local sound studios like subcat for example here in syracuse um, they went from being able to charge $10,000 to record a, an album to, you know, John Smith popping up with this and saying, I can record your album in my garage and make it sound halfway decent and I'll do it for a thousand bucks. Right. And so these studios were going under because that was happening. The same things happened for the past couple of years and still is for marketing and social media for businesses. For photographers. Yeah, because everybody's a photographer now with yeah exactly with their with their smartphone and taking some pretty good pictures too. But it it devalues a hundred percent. I see it in my work. You know what people want to pay for for writing or Mm -hmm. photography. It's disturbing. Yeah, anybody with a cell phone and a Facebook account can be a you know, advertising agency if they really wanted to. Right. And they can charge a certain amount of money and they could be awful at it, you know, but, um, you know, so I, I, I do see that for 
different restaurants I meet with, oh, we hired this person to do our social media and nothing happened and we spent X amount of money and yada, yada, yada. And I still try and challenge restaurants and say, give me your social media access for three weeks. I'll do it for free. Show you how to do it. Right. You know, and then at the end of three weeks, you'll have the format and you can just copy what I did. Right. You know, because there really aren't any secrets to it. Right. So, but... The Complete same. sentences, pay some attention to your grammar, <laughs> spelling, punctuation, um, you yeah. know, makes a difference. I, I cringe some of the stuff I see, but, you know, Robert <laughs> and I have this discussion all the time when I see somebody use your instead of Y-O-U apostrophe R-E <laughs> or whatever. It makes me cringe, but. I won't name the restaurant, but. I think people don't care anymore. They don't. A very. uh a restaurant that should not have that issue on their social posts just had that issue not too long ago. And uh, I thought to myself, and they had just hired a company that this was do- taking over their social, and I was like, oh, that's not a good sign. But it happens. Yeah. You know, Caesar salad spelled wrong on the menu. Like, hello, I would right. love to edit your menus for you. <laughs> um, but, you know, I just, I don't know. We live in a different time, and... And uh, people just don't care so much about that stuff anymore. Yeah. For better or worse. I don't know if it's better or worse. It's just I find myself just have to let it go. Yeah. So can you remember like maybe one of, maybe not of all time, but let's say in the past five years, most memorable dining out experience? Hmm. Um, wow, that meal under the tent the other night was pretty memorable to me. I've been thinking about it ever since. Yeah. Um, that was really. Yeah, that was the DFI one year celebration. Yeah, that was pretty good. Pretty amazing. Um, I mean, it was just to serve that much beautiful food to, I mean, it was just plated perfectly for like a crowd and it just, um, uh, I'm so bad at coming up with a best of or a favorite or, um, (laughs) you know, I've had several memorable meals at the Brewster Inn. Mm. Um, never been there. I've had a absolutely wonderful birthday dinner last year at the Taylor and the cook in Utica. That's one on my list. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That was just everything about it was from the service to, to the food to when we spent the day over in Utica and visit a couple of foodie Mm. places and this new Smith market. And it just was a, just a great, experience they take such good Mm. care and the food was delicious i don't remember exactly what i ate i probably Mm. ate seafood because i tend to order seafood when i go out even though it's not super local because i don't make that much of it at home yeah um Mm. but it was just a wonderful experience they have i didn't have their any of their fancy cocktails they have a really nice craft cocktail menu but they're really um have a really one of the more local wine lists in the area Hmm. 
So we had a bottle of Finger Lakes wine and a really nice dinner, and we were sorry that we had to drive home and <laughs> didn't get a room somewhere because not that we were that exhausted or anything. It's just that, you know, we didn't want to. It was just too bad we had to drive <laughs> drive yeah. an hour after that, you yeah. know. But that's a, a fantastic experience. I highly recommend it to people. Yeah. They're on the card, and I feel bad. I haven't been out there yet. so. And it wasn't that. I think I think people think of it like, I, I guess it depends what you order. I always make, I mean, I can't afford to go out all the time and mm. have dinners like that. So I'm kind of careful. And I also can't just eat like everything. So I either have an appetizer or dessert, not mm. usually both. I knew I wanted to have dessert. So I think we shared an appetizer, had a bottle of wine, each had the, an entree, and it was think 150 dollars wow yeah when all was said and done yeah so so the final question is if you could have dinner with anyone throughout history living or not who would it be probably anthony bourdain don't you miss him yeah yeah that's so sad that he's gone i know We've lost a, more than a few in the in the culinary world in the past year. Hmm. Or, you know, I'm not a big food on TV person, but I loved him. I uh, when I read, uh, is it Restaurant Confidential? Cook Kitchen Confidential. K- Kitchen Confidential. Yeah. My boyfriend had read it first, and he was laughing hysterically <laughs> while he was reading it. So I'm like, I have to read this book, and. It's just, I miss him and his honesty, you know. He's the reason why I tell Rebecca not to get seafood unless we trust the restaurant. Right, exactly. (laughs) Not around here, at least. And not to go to brunch because it's the B team. Everyone's, no one's at the top of their game because they've all gone out partying after. It's just, he, man, what Hmm. a voice, right? You know, I, I really miss him and... We have Netflix now. We mm-hmm. finally graduated to having some <laughs> TV programs, and and um, I need to watch Street Food. I haven't watched it yet, but yeah, um, mm. I just really miss him and his voice and that honesty. Yeah, know? yeah. So, but I w- I would love to have dinner with Julia Child too. Yeah. When I was really young, and her program was on TV, I was kind of like, wow. And I mean, she was so real compared to some of these people on tv now you know Mm -hmm. just a kind of french schooled i don't think really snobbish just cook i look through some of the books and i'm like i'll pick one up in a a used bookstore one of her older ones and i'm just like i don't cook like this anymore (laughs) yeah you know it's just yeah it's true i don't we don't so unless we're having people over and even if we're having people over much more casual so um, yeah, I would say Anthony Bourdain. I'll, I'll think of somebody else when I'm driving <laughs> down the street, but that's who pops to mind. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Well, Margaret, thank you so much for taking the time out and sitting down. Thanks for having me and thinking I'm guest worthy. <laughs> I'm honored. <laughs> well,
Well, there it is, everybody. Thank you so much for checking out another episode of Eat Local CMY podcast. Do me a favor. If you enjoyed the conversation, then hit that subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening to this on. That way you know the second the next episode drops. And then leave us a review. Let us know what you think of the Eat Local CMY podcast. And don't forget, get your Eat Local CMY card. It's good until the end of September of this year. And then anytime you go out to eat at over 100 participating restaurants all around Central New York, you spend $25 or more, you get to save $5 off of your bill. And for those of you uh, who currently have your local CMY card, don't worry. When your card expires at the end of September, we're going to have another card. It actually, it's going to be released here in the next two or three months, uh, and that's going to be good for the next year. All right, well, thanks so much for checking out the episode, everybody, and we'll catch you at the next one.